Welcome to the Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. This is a regular podcast where we'll look at the history of the First World War and travel together across the battlefields from Ypres to the Somme and beyond. So what's in this week's episode? Welcome back and thanks for joining me in the trenches of the old front line once more. Before we move on to another theatre of war this week, Gallipoli, more of that soon, a few things to tell you about. It's really great to get your feedback on Twitter, but I've also put uh, an old front line Facebook page up now where you can comment on there and leave some feedback and reviews of the podcast. There'll be previews of some of the podcasts on there and I'll post some of the usual photographs that... Uh, those of you who are on Facebook rather than Twitter can have a look at them. But to make everything a bit easier for you, I've decided to set up a little website for the podcast, www.oldfrontline.co.uk. And there'll be a separate page on there for every podcast episode. There'll be an embedded version of it via Spotify. And I'll put up all of the photographs that I mention and pictures of the artifacts that we talk about in each podcast so now there's quite a few ways to keep your eye on what we do with this podcast via Facebook and Twitter and now the website oldfrontline.co.uk. I also appreciate all of your likes on Apple Podcasts and your reviews. That's really great. If you can continue to do that, I'd really appreciate that. But let's get started. Let's get down to some history and battlefields as we wander along the old front line. This week on the Old Front Line, we're away from the Western Front. We're at Gallipoli, in the Dardanelles, in Turkey. Today is Anzac Day, the 25th of April, when Australia and New Zealand rightly commemorate the sacrifice of their troops in the Gallipoli landings of 1915. But it wasn't just Anzacs at Gallipoli. The British Army was there, even lesser known, the French Army was there. It was an important campaign of 1915. Churchill's folly, as many of the veterans of that campaign that I interviewed called it, when he dreamt up the idea of a second front. But they underestimated the Turks. They underestimated their capacity, their ability to defend their homeland. And Gallipoli turned into as much of a stalemate as the Western Front was at that time. Today on Anzac Day, we're going to take a walk across one part of the Gallipoli battlefields in the British sector, in Cape Hellas. I'm going to walk from Lancashire Landing down to W Beach. Gallipoli, for me, is a very personal battlefield to visit because both my grandfathers were here, one in the original landings, more of him later, and the other was at Gallipoli after the war when the British occupied Chinakali in the 1920s. As a member of the Royal Army Medical Corps, he came to the Gallipoli Peninsula and worked on some of the cemeteries here. And there are men from his unit buried in one of the cemeteries at Anzac. So I often wonder when I'm there as if I'm literally following in his footsteps. Two of my great uncles were here. One survived, one did not. His name, Tommy Sainty, is on the Hellas Memorial. The other, Dan Boyles, my grandmother's brother, who joined the Essex Regiment before the war. He'd been in Ireland and then mobilised on the outbreak of the war. 
He'd taken part in the Battle of Lukato, the retreat from Mons, the First Battle of Ypres. He'd even participated in the Christmas Truce of 1914. Wounded by shrapnel in early 1915, he returned home and was then sent to the 1st Battalion of the Essex Regiment in Gallipoli. Prior to his embarkation for the Dardanelles, my grandmother always remembered taking him to one of the local shops in Colchester where they lived, at Markham's it was called, and it sold absolutely everything. And knowing that he was going to a hotter climate than the Western Front had been, the family pulled their resources and bought him a tropical helmet, as my grandmother called it, which he took with him to Gallipoli. Uncle Dan arrived some weeks after the original landings when the front of Gallipoli had become static, and he served in the fighting around Crithia and up at Suvla, and was shot through the elbow by a Turkish sniper, almost certainly in the Crithia vineyard, was evacuated to Mudros for a while, recovered from his wounds, and returned to the Gallipoli Peninsula, where he served until the evacuation and then went with the battalion to France, where he was wounded for a third time, going over the top at Beaumont Hamel on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. So my family credentials, my connection, if you like, to Gallipoli is a strong one, but it is an incredible battlefield to visit, a place of great beauty, but tinged, of course, in the sadness of what unfolded here. 1915. So let's begin our Gallipoli walk and we're going to start at the Commonwealth War Graves Commission Cemetery, Lancashire Landing. We'll just come off the main road in this part of Cape Pelos and walk down a little track to the entrance of the cemetery. On the wall here there's an inscription and it reads the 29th division landed along the coast on the morning of April the 25th 1915. And that is, in effect, their divisional memorial to the sacrifice of their troops here and the Gallipoli operations of 1915. The incomparable 29th, as they were known at the time, was a division of the British Army formed in Britain on the outbreak of war as battalions of regiments of the British Army in the far-flung corners of the Empire were brought home to go on active service probably thinking they were going to head to France to take part in the fighting there, but instead were brigaded together into one division and then sent off to Egypt and from Egypt to Gallipoli and served throughout the campaign. It was that division that landed at Cape Pelos on this day, the 25th of April 1915, at the various beaches along the promontory that was Cape Pelos itself. But we'll open the little wooden gate here and go into the cemetery. It's one of the larger cemeteries here at Gallipoli. There's just over 1,200 burials here. And there's a good representation of men from units within the 29th Division. The Essex Regiment, the Lancashire Fusiliers, the King's Own Scottish Borderers, the South Wales Borderers. They're all represented amongst the burials here. And a lot of men as well from the 42nd East Lancashire Division. This was a territorial division that had been mobilised on the outbreak of war was made up of battalions of the East Lancashire Regiment, for example, and the Lancashire Fusiliers, and then sent off to Egypt, where it was on garrison duty, and then was uh, part of the expeditionary force that would be sent to take part in the Gallipoli landings. It served, again, pretty much throughout the campaign, and its brigades of East Lancs and Lancashire Fusiliers and Manchesters are very, very heavily represented amongst the burials here and in several cemeteries on the Gallipoli Peninsula, as well as on the Hellas Memorial. These were, if you like, the men of Gallipoli. Regular soldiers, 
Territorials and also men of the Royal Naval Division. And again there are graves from this unit in this cemetery. Gallipoli was Churchill's idea, but so was the Royal Naval Division. As Lord of the Admiralty in 1914, he discovered that he had more sailors than ships to put them on. So what to do with all these men? Rather than just have them lounging around at shore stations, he put them together in an infantry division, and they served at Antwerp in 1914, reformed at Blandford Camp in Dorset in 1915, and then took part in the Gallipoli landings and throughout the Gallipoli campaign, particularly here at Cape Hellas. So these were the sort of troops that served here at Gallipoli, in 1915. But how is the cemetery different to the ones that many of you are used to visiting on the battlefields in France and Flanders? There are headstones here but they're they're different designs of headstones to the ones that we'll see in battlefields like the Somme or at Ypres. I'll put some pictures up to show you what they look like. Now the other thing you'll quickly notice is that there are no headstones of any unknown soldiers here. There are many unknowns buried here but they do not have grave markers. The decision was made not to place headstones on their graves. So while they're marked on the cemetery plan, there's nothing to show exactly where they're buried within the main area of the cemetery. Because every headstone here is of a known soldier, you find yourself somehow lingering longer as you wander along the rows. In particular, you find yourself reading the personal inscriptions that were added by the families of these men for which, like all the other cemeteries, they had to pay three and a half pence a letter. Perhaps because Gallipoli was so much further away than the Western Front, and the chances of ever visiting these graves were slim, some families felt that it was more important to add a, an inscription to a headstone. And certainly my gut feeling every time I come to these cemeteries is that there are far more of them here than in the cemeteries along the battlefront in France and Flanders. And they make sobering reading and really some of the inscriptions tear at your heart. And when you read the age of some of the soldiers here, young boys of 15 is not uncommon amongst the burials at Gallipoli. It really makes you think. There is no cross of sacrifice in this cemetery. The religious imagery such as it is is built into part of the cemetery wall. But it sits in a beautiful landscape surrounded by the countryside at Cape Hellas, looking out across the battlefields towards Crithea, where some of these men were killed in the summer of 1915, and sitting close, of course, to the very beaches where the landings took place on this day, 25th of April, 105 years ago. Before we leave, we'll have a look at some of the graves of the Lancashire Fusiliers who are buried here. There's 86 of them in one row in row I, 82 of them are unidentified and, and therefore there are no headstones for them. But amongst the burials, the known burials, is Sergeant William Keneally. He was a, a Victoria Cross recipient of the 1st Battalion Lancashire Fusiliers, a not untypical regular army soldier, born in Wexford. His father was a regular. A very high proportion of the British Army before the war was born in Ireland. Without these Irishmen, the British Army would have been nothing, really. And young William had, had been a coal miner after he'd left school. He then joined the army for a typical period, seven and five, 12 years. Seven years as a regular soldier, five years on the reserve. And he was serving with the 1st Battalion Lancashire Fusiliers on Empire duty 
on the outbreak of war in 1914. As a 28-year-old private soldier, he came ashore with the 1st Battalion at W Beach, which we'll walk down to as part of our journey today. His citation for the Victoria Cross that he was awarded by ballot, they balloted the surviving members of the battalion so that they gave import on who they thought had achieved great deeds of bravery that day. His citation reads as a, as a good summary of, of what happened in those landings. On the 25th of April 1915, three companies and the headquarters of the 1st Battalion Lancashire Fusiliers in effecting a landing on the Gallipoli Peninsula to the west of Cape Hellas were met by a deadly fire from hidden machine guns which caused a great number of casualties. The survivors, however, rushed up to and cut the wire entanglements, notwithstanding the terrific fire from the enemy, and after overcoming supreme difficulties, the cliffs were gained and the position maintained. Among the many very gallant officers and men engaged in this most hazardous undertaking, Captain Willis, Sergeant Richards and Private Keneally had been selected by their comrades as having performed the most signal acts of bravery and devotion to duty. As an experienced and now decorated soldier, Keneally was to know that he'd been awarded the Victoria Cross. He was rapidly promoted, first to corporal and then lance sergeant. As his battalion was decimated in the fighting around Crithea, experienced men like him were incredibly useful for binding together and leading the new arrivals that were coming from the depots in Britain. His journey's end at Gallipoli came on the 28th of June 1915 during the Battle of Gully Ravine, when the battalion was commanded by Major Bromley, who had also been awarded the Victoria Cross for his bravery in the original landings. Lance Sergeant Keneally was wounded in those operations and died of his wounds the following day at the dressing station at Cape Pellis and was buried here at Lancashire Landing Cemetery, the cemetery named after that famous landing of the Lancashire Fusiliers, awarded six Victoria Crosses before breakfast. And we'll leave the cemetery now, through that little wooden gate, and take the path, and wander down towards a gully that will lead us to W Beach, one of the main landing beaches. As we approach the gully, there's the remains of an old Turkish army camp here, for many years the Turkish army had garrisons at different points of Gallipoli and some parts of the battlefield were inaccessible as a consequence of this. I remember talking to some of the veterans who used to come back here in the 1970s and how they had great difficulty in getting to some of the sites where they had fought. As we come into this gully, for me it's always a very atmospheric place to walk because after the original landings, W Beach, Lancashire Landing, became one of the main routes into the battlefields around Cape Hellas. And thousands of men arriving here for the first time marched up this gully towards the communication trenches and onwards towards the front line around Crithea and Gully Ravine. And ration parties came up here, men carrying fresh water to the front line, always a problem here at Gallipoli. And the wounded, of course, being evacuated from the dressing stations back down to the beach to be put onto lighters, to be taken to the hospital ships offshore. It was, particularly at night, a hive of activity. But men didn't just walk through here, they lived here as well. And the further you walk down this gully, you can see indentations in the banking either side. And there were sandbag shell scrapes 
and dugouts where the men lived when they were out of the line because there was no rear area at Gallipoli. There was nowhere safe. You couldn't go out on rest. When you left the trenches, you came back to places like this and you lived in this landscape, tucked away in these dugouts and positions, but always under artillery fire from the Turks, always with that threat of being wounded from shrapnel or high explosive. It was a dangerous place to be and there was no respite from it. And this is something that came across from many of the veterans that I spoke to. They were always somehow on edge. They could never get away from it. And it made the pressure of being here, of serving here, of fighting, living here, difficult for the men who were part of that campaign. So I always think of them when I walk down here. The veterans of Gallipoli. Veterans by matter probably of only a few weeks. Looking down on the new arrivals seeing them march up towards the front line for the first time. The Russian parties coming through here with the vital food and supplies for the front line, and the wounded crying out in pain as they're taken away from the battlefield area. This is what battlefield visits really are all about. This is what we get from them, that connection to the past. And wandering down these tracks and these gullies and these ravines here at Gallipoli, you can reach out and touch those events of 1915. Eventually, we come down onto the beach, W Beach, one of five landing beaches selected for the Gallipoli landing operations on the 25th of April 1915. The others, V, S, X and Y, all positions where British troops landed on that day. The Australians and New Zealanders landed further to the north at what became known as Anzac. The beach here was different to the other British beaches on the 25th of April in that it was a bit of a cove really with a big wide open beach and high cliffs and in many respects was a, a defender's paradise. German troops had been on attachment to the Turks here and had helped them bolster up their defences in the preparations for what might come. And they'd installed trenches up on the high points, machine gun positions, and they'd also put wire down in the lower part of the water so that any landing would walk straight into that. And that's exactly what happened on this day in 1915. The men of the 1st Battalion of the Lancashire Fusiliers were leading the way in this assault. Behind them, they had backup from the 1st Battalion, the Essex Regiment, and also the Anson Battalion of the Royal Naval Division. They would land in companies, and the boats would be provided by the Royal Navy, and the personnel within those boats provided by the ships that helped make this landing possible. One of those was HMS Implacable, and on board that was my grandfather, Bertie Samuel Reed. He was a leading stoker, he worked in the boilers, deep in the belly of the, of the ship. And I really grew up on his story of Gallipoli. It was probably one of my first memories of the Great War. Although I never met him, he died long before I was born. But my father used to tell me how his father had volunteered to be one of the men that would row the Lancashire Fusiliers in. 
and as it approached the beach, W Beach, they'd come under this murderous fire from the cliffs. Now, over 100 years later, there is some debate as to whether this was from machine guns or just rifle fire or a combination of both. But whatever, it depleted heavily the men coming in on those rowing boats as they approached the beach. One of my grandfather's enduring memories of that day was the men of the Lancashire Fusiliers getting out of those boats and into the water to try and storm up the beach. There was, of course, in 1915, no landing craft. This was not D-Day. These were normal rowing boats, and the way to get out was to climb up over the side and drop down into the water. And the Lancashire Fusiliers were loaded up with their full kit, their full webbing gear, their rations that would be needed for the coming days, and their ammunition uh, and other weaponry and equipment that would be required. So they weighed a lot, and when they dropped down into the water, some of them drowned, they'd misjudged the depth, others went straight on to the wire. And my grandfather always remembered that the the sea at Gallipoli ran red with the blood of the men of the Lancashire Fusiliers. That was the memory that he carried with him to his dying day. And when my father tried to join the army just before the war, he was put off by my grandfather, by his dad, who had warned him, don't join the army, son, I've seen what happens to the army when they face the enemy on a battlefield. And although my father tried to join the Air Force and the Navy, the army was where he eventually went, and he saw conditions at Anzio which were not dissimilar in many respects to what had happened at Gallipoli a generation before. So the Lancashire Fusiliers were coming under this murderous fire, but not all of them. One party had landed further along the flank and had got up over and into the Turkish positions, and gradually they began to crumble. And as the survivors from the landing pushed off the beach, and they too began to climb the cliffs and got into the Turkish positions, gradually the whole area here collapsed under the weight of the British advance. And naval gunfire greatly assisted with this, although there was an occasion in which some of this dropped short straight onto some of the Lancashire Fusiliers on the beach, causing a friendly fire incident. But by the end of the day, W Beach had been successful. Despite the heavy losses amongst the Lancashire Fusiliers, this was a successful landing. The men had got beyond the beach and had got inland. And it was decided that considering the bravery of those who had taken part in the operations here that day, there should be the award of a number of Victoria Crosses for the men who were here. And this was done by ballot, where the men who'd survived the battle were able to recommend their own comrades for the award and six were given the Victoria Cross as a consequence of this. Captain Cuthbert Bromley, Corporal John Grimshaw, Private William Keneally, whose grave we've seen at Lancashire Landing, Sergeant Alfred Richards, Sergeant Frank Stubbs, and Captain Richard Willis. It became known as the occasion in which the British Army won six VCs before breakfast, and the deeds and exploits of these men won immortal fame. When the reports of the Gallipoli operations reached the British media, it was full of this story, full of the heroism of the Lancashire Fusiliers, in many respects, of course, to try and disguise the bitter pill of the casualties that had been suffered here in those initial landings. Once the landings were over and the army had moved inland, W Beach, or Lancashire Landing as it was quickly dubbed, became a rear echelon of the British troops at Cape Hellas. This was a place where new arrivals came in on boats and where men lived on these cliffs around us. As we look here today, we can see evidence of this, indentations in the bank, 
caves that were turned into larger dugouts. There is some World War II evidence here as well. The Turks were neutral in the Second World War and they put up a number of concrete pillboxes and defences along the Gallipoli Peninsula and around the Dardanelles and there are some examples of that here. But it's not just on the cliffs and in the gullies. If we look out to sea we can see the remains of the pier here. And whenever I visit W Beach, I think of one veteran in particular that I knew, Joe Murray. He was a veteran of the Royal Naval Division. He wrote a fantastic book on the campaign, Gallipoli as I saw it. And uh, I came to know Joe because a friend of mine's father was moved to uh, a retirement home in Dorking. And she gave me a call and said, uh, there's a veteran uh, who's living there and he's written a book about Gallipoli. And I said, he's not named Joe Murray by any chance. And, of course, it was Joe. And I went to see him in the last few years of his life. An amazing guy, still had the tattoo of his regimental insignia on both his forearms and some great stories of the Gallipoli campaign. And here on the beach, him and his mates in May of 1915 were charged with helping to build the pier that went out towards where the lighters and the beetles, the little ships that came in from the mother ships bringing supplies and equipment, they were there to uh, to help build this pier up. So they would go and fetch some equipment, bring it back to the beach, pick up a bit of uh, stone, take that out to the pier and put it down to try and build it up. But the sea seemed to be vengeful and it seemed to be dragging bits of this pier away. So as much as they build it up, the sea would knock it down. But even after 100 years, there is evidence of it today and indeed evidence of some of the little ships that were used to bring in the troops which you can see at low tide. When you visit W Beach, it gives you this insight into the incredible bravery, not just of the Lancashire Fusiliers, but of the Turkish troops defending this ground against what was then overwhelming odds on that day in 1915. But it also gives you an insight, and it's a good place to really think about, the failure at Gallipoli in 1915, and it was a British failure. Because although we got ashore, what was the next plan? What were we planning to do after we'd got ashore? And even today, when we stand on this beach in a modern car using modern roads, we are six hours from Istanbul, Constantinople as it was then. And in 1915, this would have been days and days. And if you've ever driven that route between Istanbul and the Gallipoli Peninsula, it often reminds me of the Sussex Downs. There's rolling downland there, which is easily defendable. And there would have been ridge after ridge, valley after valley, river after river, defended by the Turkish army, slowing us down. So even if we'd have got off the Gallipoli Peninsula, how long would it have taken us to get to Constantinople? The whole plan was a folly, a costly folly, that cost tens of thousands of lives in 1915. And today, on the 25th of April, we remember the sacrifice of those Anzac troops as it's Anzac Day, but all of those nations that took part in the Gallipoli campaign of 1915. It's that part of the podcast where we look at an object connected to the Great War. And this week's object is a Gallipoli object. It's a little tiny blue photo album with Kodak on the cover and it's one that I picked up in a junk shop many many years ago opening it up are some photographs of some troops in Egypt 
and then gradually the scenes move to the Gallipoli Peninsula. These are not official photographs. There were very few what you could describe as official photographers at Gallipoli in 1915. These are private photographs taken by an officer of the 1st 5th Battalion of the Royal Scots, which was one of the territorial battalions that was later attached to the 29th Division at Cape Helles and also at Anzac. And although later on in the war private photographs were prohibited at Gallipoli, quite a lot of men seem to have taken cameras with them. The Kodak Vest Pocket Camera, the VPK, was affordable for many men, um, and there are a large number of photograph albums like this that do survive from the Gallipoli campaign. Um, so it's not an uncommon thing. It's, it's not really common, but it's not uncommon either, I suppose. Um, so images like this are snapshots of 1915, snapshots of the campaign in the Dardanelles. They show men not in formal settings, but carrying out their day-to-day -day duties and activities. And so give us quite an insight into what it was like to be there in 1915 there because of that I think all the more powerful images because they show men not in their best uniforms but in the ragtag uniforms that they often wore in that hot climate at Gallipoli. It was a very difficult battlefield in which to live. All of the veterans that I interviewed used to talk about the flies and how the flies descended on everything into your tea, into your rum, onto your hardtack biscuit with jam on top, you ended up eating these flies, and that's why so many men got sick. And you can almost sense the flies in these photographs when you, when you look at it. So fading as they are, they are a fascinating insight into the Gallipoli campaign, into the men of Gallipoli who served amongst the gullies and the ravines and at the top of the bluffs and in the trenches along that peninsula. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. I hope you found this week's content of interest. Do take time to subscribe to the podcast. Follow me on Twitter at SOMCOR and tell us what you think using the hashtag Old Front Line. Until next week, when our paths cross again on the battlefields of the Great War. <laughs>